Hi everybody, uh, it's Ross here. Thanks for everybody who listened to the first one of my little um, like audio blogs, um, all logs, um, get a little podcast. Um, essentially, uh, these are just an audio recording of the blog post to which they are associated with. Um, the idea being that if you don't have time to read a whole blog or you just fancy consuming one of these blog posts in a different format, um, that you can do so. Uh, so it's just like something nice and different um, for you to, a different way for you to consume one of these, ep uh, one of these blog posts. Um, I'm not doing anything fancy. I'm not recording this through Audacity and doing any editing. So I literally am doing this in one take. Uh, so if I stumble or if I slip up at any point, then I apologize, <laughs> but I'm kind of just keeping it real. Um, a little bit of backstory to this blog post. Um, this is part one of two blog posts that I'm going to be doing on this, um, on this adventure. I did a bikepacking trip back in May of 2021, um, and you might have seen that I did write a blog uh, called What Does It Even Mean?, um, which is a rather existential um, title for a blog, <laughs> as some of you might have seen it. It's quite an existential blog. Um, but really, that that blog was me reflecting on a little bit on what it was to go on a long-distance adventure. Um, and I recently just read um, The Farthest Shore by Alex Roddy, um, in which he does something quite similar, um, looking at like immersion in nature um, and sort of saying how, you know, going to wild places and experiencing nature isn't a surefire way of you um, of you dealing with any of the problems that are perhaps within yourself, uh, because nature is a beast of its own and really it does its own thing. So, yeah, so I kind of wrote that blog and then I realized that after a long time um, thinking about this trip, I wanted to write something else about it. And I just wanted to just do an account from the trip itself uh, because I wanted a way to capture it nicely um, and also look back on it now with a different take. It's OK after a little while to look back on an adventure and think of it in a different light. Um, that's totally normal. So, so yeah, as I say, this is part one. Um, I'm going to record this and then I'm literally shooting off to Scotland in about half an hour. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I will record this and I hope you enjoy it. The young guy in front of me shifted awkwardly within the confines of the small hospital chair in which he sat, moving from one uncomfortable spot to another in a vain attempt to get some sleep. I looked at my phone. No signal. The clock read close to 1am. Beyond the walls of my fogged brain, I could hear chattering, the beeps and boops of machines, and the general groan from other patients. This was the twilight zone of the A&E department, a place where time becomes irrelevant. A few hours before, I was in the back of an ambulance, laughing drunkenly with the paramedic as the morphine caused my face to lose all sensation. That day, I'd been groaning on the couch with a terrible fever, migraine and stomach ache, which suddenly at 10 p.m. had morphed into the closest I can conceive being stabbed in the abdomen feels like. I had puked, cried, yelled, Bowie phoned 111 and they'd sent an ambulance. I felt really terrible for her. We'd moved house literally only 48 hours ago, which is stressful enough, uh, only for me to then suddenly be struck down by an intolerable pain. 
Back in the hospital, the other guy had been taken away. I was starting to feel like myself again and shuffled out of bed in search of water. No water, said the doctor. We might need to do a scan. I returned to my padded tray, the bed on which I had been carried from from ambulance to examination room to the corridor in which I had been now for four hours. This bike ride definitely was not happening. You'll have maybe read in a previous blog about my pedal for wildness, a 1,000 kilometre bike ride to raise money for the John Muir Trust. As I lay on that bed, I realised how foolhardy it had been to schedule the ride within seven days of hosting an event, moving house, and all other manner of things that go with that. Staring at the fluorescent lamps above, I kicked myself for it. Whatever this thing was that had torn my insides out, one of the likeliest causes was stress. Who chooses to do their longest trip ever while shopping in Ikea, building furniture, emptying their old house, and trying to work all in advance? Ross Brannigan, the doctor called. I gingerly swung my legs off the bed and made my way into the curtain examination room. It was now 4am. I hadn't drank anything in nearly four hours, and now the doctor was asking questions in such a random order, I knew I was going to slip up. After ten minutes of questions, he said I could go home. He said he'd give me anti-acid tablets and left the room. I was really bewildered. Anti-acid tablets? Shit, I thought. Why did I try to compare it to acid reflux? I complained a bit, but that was all they were going to do. I sat in the waiting room and awaited to be collected. The week went by. Furniture was built, the house took shape, but the trip nagged at me. Now, though, the expectations were low. Given I had just been hospitalised, even setting off would be a victory. I rescheduled the ride, asked open tracking to shift my order date, move my annual leave, and prepare myself for departure the following weekend. It was worth a shot. My plan was to set off from my front door and ride to Sandwood Bay, visiting each of the sites managed by the John Muir Trust along the way. Glenridding, Glenlude, Shehalian, Ben Nevis, Noydart, Skye, and, finally, Sandwood Bay. I wanted to make this ride for people to enjoy, to join in on, so I had hired an open tracking device so that people could follow me on my route and hopefully donate money as well. Day one, Kendall to the Glen Lude, 187 kilometers, 1,770 meters of ascent. The garden was in full splendor, whispering in the air. On 15th of May, I lifted my laden bike up the garden steps and made the first pedal strokes up the road. My partner, now fiance, Bo, and friend, Andy, would meet me at the Kirkstone Pass for a few photographs before I really set off north. I constantly reminded myself of the tortoise and the hare as I made my way up Kirkstone Pass, a pass which sits at 430 metres above sea level and would be my highest point for the day. This is just about moving forwards, not speed. After an early pit stop atop the snaking road for a slice of pizza and a goodbye, I zoomed down the other side into Patterdale to my first checkpoint, Glenridding. Arbitrarily, I decided that the checkpoints would be the easiest boundary point I could touch that the trust managed. I met Isaac, Glenridding Conservation Officer, for a brief chat in the town before making the nasty steep climb from the town up to Glen Greenside Cottages. Now, the longest ride, continuous ride of the trip began. With the excitement of Kirkstone and Glenridding done, it was time for the hard miles to Glenwood and the borders. I made my way up the roads above Allswater, eventually joining the long farm roads into Carlisle. I was pleased my route planning paid off here. Sunto had plotted a route further west, which looked to me to do a number of turns. The route I, was, I took was on sublime, fast, straight roads all the way to the outskirts of Carlisle. Given the amount of crap roads I was likely to follow, I would take the straight and easy ones while I could. 
If you ask any cyclist what it's like getting through Carlisle, and they will likely use any synonym of madness. I laughed when I watched Jenny Graham do the same in GCM Plus's uh, Lone Rider. She said, I feel like I've been coming out of Carlisle for like a month. After the sketchy rows of inner and outer Carlisle, I finally made it to the cycle path alongside the M74. In the run-up to this ride, driving up and down the M74, I'd point out to Bo where the cycle route was and would say, it'll be wild to say I rode up this road after the, after the ride. I will say it ain't the bonniest of rides. It's just efficient. And the miles churned by as I ticked off little milestones along the way, the biggest being getting into Gretna. I pulled into the cafe that sits astride the border and scoffed a fruit scone, which was on the Scottish side, while the plain ones were on the English side, and a sandwich, and chased to su- ch- chatted to some other cyclists. After a natter and a farewell, it was off to Moffat, which seemed to take forever to appear, such as the mundane nature of the M74. Headphones really did help at this point. Though not obvious, there is a slight climb up to Moffat, where, after eight hours, I stepped off the bike again for an ice cream. Remember? Tortoise not here. I knew I needed all the energy I could get for the last push. The interminable climb to St. Mary's Loch is never easy, especially after with a fully laden bike and the best part of days riding at your legs. The early stages of the climb passed without issue. Car from Wildwood sat on my left at the halfway point, a really stunning example of, con- of a community paving the way for incredible ecological restoration. However, it was just after the Greymare's tail that my legs really fell off. I crawled my way along the Loch of the Lows, eating anything I could, I thought might bring some energy back to my system. Not only that, but my signal had dropped just as Bruce Springsteen shouted, can't start a fire, leaving me singing the rest of the lines by myself. It wasn't until I reached the Gordon Arms Hotel did life finally return to me. With 183 kilometers ridden in 10 hours, I knew Glenrood was right around the corner. The climb dropped away without too much misery and the edges of the former Cornifan plantation came into view. I've never been so excited to see a row of larches and sitcas in my life. Glenn Wood was gifted to the trust in 2003 after the passing of Sheila Bell, a really remarkable woman who made the restoration of this place for nature one of her lasting legacies. I'd contacted Karen, the site manager, asking if I could stay in the small hut there. I could have camped, of course, as people are welcome to do so in the dedicated camping circle, but after what would have been one of the longest days in the saddle, I fancied some home comforts. I opened the cabin and wheeled my bike in, noting a large charging lamp on the table. I flopped into a chair and pulled my helmet off at last and read the note on the whiteboard. Welcome Ross, Andy, JMT volunteer, camping, blue vehicle beyond. Please use mini USB charge lead or Samsung. Sorry, no iPhone lead. Some networks available around the hut. Here he drew a diagram. If you would like a carry out, my treat. Cheers, Andy, 6 p.m. plus. In that moment, I swelled inside. It was what I had dreamed would happen, but dared not hope for. These kind interactions with complete strangers who would become the characters of this trip. I had an hour to kill before 6pm, so decided to wander from the hut to the south edge of the site. Since 2003, the Trust has been slowly thinning the old plantation to make way for native broadleafs like hazel, oak and rowan. One of the major successes of the site, huge thanks to the site rangers Karen and Sarah, is how it's become a jewel in the hearts of many and even changed lives. Phoenix Futures is an organization working to rehabilitate those with drug and alcohol problems. With the trust, the group has created a Phoenix forest, an enclosed area where people come to plant trees and maintain brash hedges to recover from their addiction. Here, if you're wondering what a brash hedge is, it's essentially 
dead sticks, woods, uh, twigs, branches, whatever, all knitted together and sort of stacked into a natural hedge, um, which could protect trees from deer and sheep, um, just so that they can get going. So it's just a nice way of creating a fence without all the infrastructure of metal and posts. I stood over that juvenile forest, watching the early phases of a new generation of woodland beginning, a symbol of what can be, along with all the biodiversity that will come with it. The whole forest will soon have all of its larch removed, as the pervasive larch disease has spread through the wood. I marched my way back to the hut, my borrowed wellies for whooping against my legs, and the new vegetation scraping by. I felt strangely not tired, which was a surprise. Perhaps all that training had finally yielded some benefits. Andy showed up at about six. He had wild scraggly hair and a beard, a broad nose and a bubbling smile, and told me about his time volunteering with the Trust as we made our way down to Innerleith and his Berlingo. It was clear that Andy had been through the pointy end of life at times, but nowadays found companionship and purpose through his volunteering and his walks with the Ramblers up near Edinburgh. We parked the car and made our way to Innerleith and Chippy, ordered some food and headed off to find a, bu- a bench to, on which to, to eat it. The sun was now low in the sky, the sky turning that beautiful pastel colour. A glorious sunset outside of Chippy is a really rare thing in Scotland, as much of the time you're being chased off by swarms of midges. It was such a simple pleasure. It was interesting that, although relative strangers to one another, Andy spoke really openly about his mental health and the solace he found in getting out into nature. It was clear to me that there are simply so many individual reasons people go out to enjoy or work to protect the outdoors, whether it be a sense of responsibility to the environment or responsibility to one's own mental state. We both understood that, and so perhaps it wasn't so strange to be talking about such things. Given there was no signal in the lower areas of Glenlude, I made a few phone calls before we headed back up the B709 to Glenlude. As we rounded the corner and Glenlude came into view, Andy said, wow, would you look at that? The sun was hanging just above Ducher Law on our right, casting striking shadows across the plantation and its slowly regenerating native woodlands. I've never seen the brash hedges as clear as that, he said. He dropped me at the side of the road right there and parked the car a few hundred, a hundred metres away so he could enjoy it too. Sure enough, the Phoenix Forest and its neighbouring Jamie's Wood stood out clearly as the brash hedges around them were brought into sharp relief by the waning light. Within a few minutes, the magic had gone, the edges softening again and reclining, reclining back into the landscape as dusk took hold. A couple minutes later, and we'd have missed that, said Andy, clearly awestruck by nature's show. The blackbirds and starling began their evening song as we returned to the car and to our home for the night. Andy left the campsite while I laid. Andy left for the campsite while I laid out my sleeping mat and sleeping bag. The hut was an enormous cast iron. The, the hut has an enormous cast iron stove under which they had to lay a concrete foundation because they originally tried to set it down and it fell through the floor. It took a time to get it hot, but once the fire was going, the room was incredibly warm, and I had to restrain myself from adding more logs, else I'd sweat throughout the night. I fell asleep quickly, with the thoughts now turning towards home. Day two. Glenlude to Tillicutry, 110 kilometres and 860 metres of ascent. I awoke with a great sense of optimism. Dew clung to the pines outside and a crisp air lay in the forest. Today I would be heading back to home turf, Tillicutry, where I grew up. My left shoulder and neck were a bit stiff from the day before. 
but I packed up and strapped everything back to the bike, ready for 8am. Andy had told me the night before about his home-built e-bike, which he clearly loved. Sure enough, he was at the end of the drive waiting for me on it, ready to join me down to Innerleithen before heading his own way over the local hills. Before setting off on the ride, I had received an email from a chap called Tim, another volunteer at Glenlude. He was really keen to join me and was coming to meet us at the number one cafe for some breakfast. Andy and I zoomed easily down the road to Innerleithen, barely turning a pedal for eight kilometres. Number one cafe is often the number one reason I stop in Innerleithen. Craig and his wife have an incredible business and a really tight-knit community built around this cafe in the heart of mountain biking country. Pre-COVID, you'd find a couple of tables around which half a dozen people would all squish together and tell their tales from the trails that day. We made our way to the table by the window after locking up our bikes outside, ordered a couple of coffees and sensational breakfast and waited for Tim's arrival. When Andy's order of banana and maple-covered French toast arrived, he held it aloft and said, a toast to you, and broke out into a really infectious laugh. Tim arrived later than expected, but I hadn't expected him to have cycled all the way from Gore Bridge that morning. Waving goodbye to Andy, I followed Tim up the stunningly beautiful and quiet B709 north of Inners, which weaves its way around the hopes and laws of the border hills. I decided to ask, start by asking Tim what, he, what had brought him to be a volunteer with the Trust. He told me he was in the middle of a total career move from a life in catering to one of conservation. Two different people, two totally different motives. I was just walking in the hills when I realised, what am I actually doing to protect these places? He recounted. We watched as a group of stone chats flitted from one telephone wire to another with their telltale stone scraping call. It was turning into another marvellous day, as we neared the summit of the long climb we had been riding up for so long. At the top of the road, we came to a sudden and definitive geological intersection. The Moorfoot Hills came to an abrupt end, and the ground dropped straight down to the low farmlands below. We also stood on a political boundary, now stepping into Midlothian and leaving the Scottish borders behind. In the distance, the city of Edinburgh glinted in the sunlight, with the castle clearly visible on its rocky perch. We descended on the fast-flowing B7007, or call me 7007, to Middleton and soon Gore Bridge, where I'd be on my own again. Tim had been excellent company and enjoyed learning more about his motivations for wanting to become a ranger and all the hoops modern life throws at us for the sin of simply changing our minds. My trusty Sunto sat at the top of my aero bars and it admirably guided me to this point. However, its lack of a clear map and confusion about just when I should turn left meant that once I had hit the busier roads, I had to keep my wits about me at all times. My memory of the kilometres between Bonnyrigg and Clackmanishire is patchy and could be best described as a series of wrong turns, small cycleways, hopping across dual carriageways, traffic lights, traffic, a stoned guy, bunny hopping dog shite and broken glass. There were a few highlights. As anyone who has done long distance adventures probably knows, arriving at a place you associate with other memories, having just propelled yourself a long way to get there, is a unique experience. I've always associated Haymarket Station in the centre of Edinburgh with days out shopping or the rugby. Now it bloody well cycled there. From Kendall. It wouldn't be the last time I'd experienced one of those landmark shit I cycled here moments on this trip. Naturally, the Fourth Road Bridge was a real highlight, with its neighbouring bridges resplendent in the sunshine. I will say, the less said about Dunfermline the better. It all went a bit wrong just after the Fourth Road Bridge where I lost track of the cycleway and ended up on what, can, what used to be a really horrible slip road of the M90. Thankfully, with the new Queensferry crossing, the road was empty, 
but riding along essentially a motorway was thoroughly unenjoyable. After that, Dunfermline's infuriatingly poor cycle infrastructure had me hopping over dual carriageways, riding the wrong way on roundabouts, and undertaking all manner of dangerous manoeuvres. Mercifully, as the steep climb around, after the steep climb around Pitt and Creef Park, I made it into the most astonishingly good bit of cycle path I'd have come across. The West Fife Way is a veritable motorway for active travel. I joined it in Dunfermline and didn't leave it for just under 20 kilometres where I reached Clackmannan. After I almost, uh, almost pan flat, it had a whole five kilometre section of arrow straight path. What a treat after the purgatory that preceded it. Part of this ride was me spreading the word about people like Andy and Tim, helping to protect our wild places. The other parts were showing how amazing those places are and helping to break them myself. Now, the West Fife Way isn't exactly the wildest of places, but it is for some. As I approached two guys with their dog walking the same way I was cycling, I saw one of them clearly toss a plastic bag into the bushes. Rage immediately sparked within me, but I played the dumb inquisitor. Sorry, mate, I called. They turned. I think you dropped something. It was clear the guy was embarrassed at being caught. As he went to pick it up, I said, plastic bag, man, fits in your pocket, easy, and you can put it in the bin when you get home. Cheers now. I pedaled off before he had a chance to reply, but his mate, who hadn't heard me, asked, What do you drop? His wallet? I didn't give a response, hoping that one, they weren't about to punch my head in, and two, they'd not just ditch it five seconds later, because you can only do so much. I rolled into Taylor Country six hours after leaving Glen Lude. Just because I could, I'd booked a massage with family friend and masseuse Carol at 5pm, so I had some time to kill beforehand. Modern travel has totally skewed our perceptions of distance. In a two-hour flight, I could go from Manchester to Mallorca, an entirely different country, climate, and culture. Driving from my house in Kendall to parent to my parents would usually take around three hours. Instead, I'd taken on nigh on 16 hours of cycling to get here, ignoring the time spent asleep. It's impossible to conceptualize how vast the world must have felt to the cattle drovers of the Highlands as they brought their cows from across the country to Marcus and Creef, Stirling, or Falkirk. Imagine going back in time to a drover walking through Glencoe and saying, where I come from, we could get to Stirling in a couple of hours. After some time spent in, my, in, the, parent, in the garden with my parents, I headed off to see Carol. She's an old school friend of my mum's, and her son Lee and I were good friends in school. Before I moved away, Carol had been both a masseuse and psychologist as I mused about career paths and relationships while she drilled her knuckles into my back. More than anything, it was a nice chance to catch up. I stuck my head through the, the hole in the massage bench and said that my neck and shoulder had felt quite tight. As she worked her way into it, Carol said, this is going to hurt. I've never seen your neck so bad. She was right. It did hurt like hell. I knew I'd adopted a slightly racy position on the bike, but was far more upright than I usually would be. Still, maybe this wasn't enough because my shoulder and neck were in pieces, like a dull migraine. After 30 minutes, I bade Carol farewell and headed back home prepared for a hearty refueling before taking myself to Highland Pressure tomorrow. Day three, Tillicutry to Pitlochry, 108 kilometers and 1,220 meters of ascent. The weather had to break at some point. I'd been mindful of the forecast, but I told myself not to set too much store by it day to day. After all, I had to get up and out the door, whatever, whether I liked it or not. It was to be a very sociable day though. My uncle Grant was going to give me, was going to join me to Stirling where I would then finally have a chance to catch up with the old uni friend, Luis. Having moved to the Lake District a year ago, this trip was also just a good chance to see friends I'd missed for a while. After a speedy spin along the hill foots to Stirling and a bite to eat with Luis, 
I turned to the Bridge of Allen to collect my companion for the rest of the day, Lewis. Our route would take us along the stunning roads of Stirlingshire and into Highland Perthshire. Given I grew up in Tillicutri and went to university in Stirling, it felt really like a return to an old stomping ground. A slow climb out of Dunblane eventually broke into a series of undulating roads to Creef. Despite the grey and ominous skies, we were quickly throwing spare layers into our bags, which were sadly joined by odd bits of litter we found on some of the quieter lanes. We managed to arrive in Creef dry, and once we arrived in the old market town, we had just a short while to wait for my colleague Izzy to show up, who was cycling from Perth and would join us to Dunkeld. When she arrived, we cycled up and down the main street in Creef on the hunt for a cafe, eventually settling on the cafe rhubarb and ordering some food. As the three of us chatted and ate cake, the weather finally came in. As anyone who rides bikes will know, getting your temperature back up after a cafe stop is hard enough without the drumming of rain. There was only so long we could hold off though, so we swung our legs over our bikes and pedaled along the road to enter the small glen. As we headed north along the River Amund, the rain continued to beat down, but the miles flew by just as fast. Despite his bike probably weighing the same as mine without bags, Lewis kept dropping little watch bombs as we sped our way to Dunkeld. Izzy is now the John Muir Trust Conservation Officer at Shehalian, one of the one of Scotland's most famous Munros. Its role in the weighing of the world experiment had given way to a collective effort with neighbouring landowners to bring back a tree canopy and nature corridor for wildlife to return to across that corner of Perthshire. Izzy had lately been branded as the Trust Mont Mountain Woodlands Officer, given her expertise in Scotland's wee trees, something I'll come back to in the next chapter of this blog. Not only is she a wee, a wee trees wizard, She's also a pretty tough nut on the bike, regularly taking on absolutely epic rides with her boyfriend, Innes, who himself has ridden the TCR on several occasions. Very wet, but in good spirits, we rolled into Burnham to make a pit stop at another colleague, Nikki's house. After devouring a bowl of soup and most of a box of oatcakes, Nikki asked me how the rest of the trip was shaping up. Did you manage to get a hold of the guy on Noidart? She asked. Noidart is one of the least accessible places in the country, really only penetrable by foot or boat. I toyed with the idea of heading to Malague and getting a ferry to Inveree, but the trouble was my arbitrary rule of touching the trust boundary line would have meant climbing Larvin, the closest point on the south side. Larvin's a big massive Munro if you didn't know. Instead I had opened for cycling to Kinlochorn and chartering a boat to Lee, or as close as I could get to it as possible. Besides, this also had a bit of an adventure feeling to it, and would hopefully allow me to see the regeneration in Coyer Ur. Yeah, good, I replied. There's a chap called Peter who's given me a lift from Kinlochorn to Noidart. How much is the ferry? She asked, as she turned to a drawer behind the dining table. She handed me a little wad of notes. That's my contribution, Nikki said. It was so kind of her, and such a perfect contribution. I thanked her and pocketed the notes. Lewis and I then made our way along from Dunkel to Pitlochry. Above us, we could see uh, Ben Veraki looming large above the town of Pitlochry. This was another return to home for me. Before moving to Kendall, I'd lived in a small cottage just along from Dalgais. It had been a freezer in winter, but I still had fond memories of cycling these roads up and down, ben, uh, cycling these roads and running up and down Benbaraki before COVID-19 set us all home. After arriving in Pitlochry, it was time for Lewis to catch his train. So we made a quick stop at the Tower House, the John Muir Trust's HQ, and my old office before COVID-19. Lewis had been a great companion on this ride, dead keen, fit as a fiddle, and lamenting that he could not follow me all the way north. After a goodbye on the platform, I turned the bike around to head for Andy's. Now, 
I can only record this for 30 minutes and I've only got two minutes left. So I'll skip the bit. If you want to know all about this section at Andy's house, then feel free to read it on the blog, rossrunswild.home.blog. Um, tomorrow was meant to be the biggest test and the hardest day on the bike. So I was appreciating Andy's optimism. It was going to be a remote day and a lot of off-road riding. We'd leave Pitlochry, head to Shahalian, and continue to Loch Rannach. After that was a test of getting to Loch Ossian, a beautiful but rough part of the world. I'd heard the gravel there was excellent, so was keen to see it for myself. We'd leave Ossian behind and make our way north to Fursit and a final trundle to Fort William, where we'd camped in Glen Nevis somewhere. All in all, it was going to be 156 kilometres and 1,500 metres of ascent, at least 30% of it off-road. This would be fun. At least we had career station venison burgers to look forward to. Thanks for this. Um, you can read the whole thing on my blog and part two will be released pretty soon. Until then, thanks everyone very much. Keep adventuring, keep your head up and have a lovely, lovely day.